One of the things I enjoy the most uh, as a preacher, and I'm not, I'm not even sure if it's a good thing that I enjoy it, but one of the things that I enjoy the most is um, taking passages that are so familiar that the congregation actually thinks that they understand the passage. Really, that's part of my call. It's actually to grab the text and get out of it as much as I can, but also wrestle with the assumption that we know the story already because there is something so dangerous of assuming that we know the story. This is why the Bible is so beautiful and amazing. It doesn't matter how many times you read the same text and you study the same text. It seems like if the Bible continues to speak in mighty ways, even though you think that you know the story. So let me ask, this is family time, so let me ask a question. How many of you guys know the story of Peter? Raise your hand. All right, let me ask a better question. How many of you guys actually think that you know the story of Peter? So I'm praying that the Lord allows me to give you a little bit more light in what you already know about this story. So we continue in our journey through the Gospel of Matthew, and we get to this section in Matthew chapter 26, in which Matthew continues to do something that he's been doing since the beginning of chapter 26, which is he's almost like comparing and contrasting Jesus to everybody else that is in the picture. Right? So at the beginning of the text, we see Jesus being compared to Judas, and then later on, we see Jesus being compared to the religious leaders. And now we're going to see Jesus being compared to Peter. And it's almost like if Matthew purposely is comparing, doing this uh, comparison, so we can see the difference between light and darkness, evil and good, love and hate, and the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this earth. So that's what we're going to do today as we look at Peter's um, failure. Peter disowning Jesus. Um, but we're going to talk about something different to what we saw before. So we're not going to see Peter similar to Judas, for example, that had his struggles with greed and didn't want to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Peter, that's not Peter's problem. Also, we're going to see that his problem is not like the religious leaders that had uh, problems with uh, drunk with power, that they couldn't accept the reality and the truth that was in front of them. That was not Peter's problem. Actually, I'm going to make the argument that Peter's problem was nothing like their problem. His sin, personal sin, was nothing like the sins of the people that came before him. I don't think that Peter has an antagonistic motive or attitude, which is what we see with the other two groups, Judas and the rest, and the, and the rest of the religious leaders. I'm going to make the argument, I'm going to go as far as to say that I think that Peter's problem, Peter's sin was the sin of ignorance. Not, not like Judas, not like the religious leaders, but he was ignorant. And we're going to see it from seeing one of his struggles, which I am calling the sin of duplicity. See, I think that Peter's problem was that he lacked integrity, that he was dishonest, but what I'm going to argue is that I don't think that his dishonesty was on purpose. He had the tendency to just say something with his mouth and do something else with his actions. That's part of the narrative. That's part of what happens here all throughout his life, especially in this, in this case. 
So we're going to look at Peter as a case study, all right? And we're going to try to put ourselves in that story to see if it's true. So we're going to talk about the sin of duplicity, three points, the example, the reason, and the solution. The sin of duplicity, the example, the reason, and the solution. Let's go with point number one, the sin of duplicity, the example. I want us to start by remembering what is it that Peter told Jesus. By the way, I don't have a timer, so I have no idea when I'm supposed to finish. I have no issues with that, by the way. Uh, I, 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 want, I want you to start uh, thinking about something that Peter said the moment Jesus told them that he was going to betray, that, they, that the disciples were going to betray him. So, of course, we've got to go back to verses 31 and 33, where Jesus says to the disciples, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. And then in verse 33, look at how Peter responds, how fast he rep- responds. Even if all of you, if all fall away on your account or account of you, I never will. Now, if you were with us when we preached this sermon, uh, you may remember that the gospel of Luke is, adds to the conversation and allows us to see that when Peter says that even though all fall away, Peter is not talking about all humanity. Peter is talking about all the disciples. So he's actually saying, even if all of these guys fall away, I never will. Now, the comment that I made then is the comment that I'm making today. This is a perfect evidence of someone that has a really, 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 really low EQ. Emotional intelligence. See, a person that struggles with an emotional intelligence is someone that does not know how to read his own emotions or read the emotions of the rest of the group. So here you have this man that is boldly proclaiming, I'm never going to do what these guys could do. Who does that? Now, it's interesting because after that, Jesus actually tells them in verse 34 and 35, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Not one, not twice, not twice, three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. So let me ask you, I'm going to put a question out there. Do you think that Peter was being phony? Don't, don't answer, just think about it. Do you think that he actually meant what he said? Just hold that thought. So now we have to put that in context to the text that we're looking at today. And if you remember, last week we said that oh, there's a trial happening and Jesus is taken, uh, he's taken to the courtyard of the high priest. And I made the argument that that was an illegal move. That that trial should have never taken, be, taken place in a courtyard's pers- uh, in the person of a court, in the courtyard of a person. And the text says that Peter was following from the distance. Actually, verse 58 says that Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. And then he entered and he sat down with the guards to see the outcome. Out of all the disciples, he is the only one that after running away from Jesus at Gethsemane, he's following Jesus at a distance just to see what would happen. That is the context of the text. Now, look at what happens in verse 69. Now, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, 
and a servant girl came to him. Why does that little phrase, he was sitting in a courtyard, is so important? Because the only reason, this is so important for us to see, because this tells us that the only reason why we know what Peter did was because Peter said it. The only disciple that was there, seeing everything that is happening here, is Peter himself. Therefore, we know that the only reason why we have that in the scripture is because Peter said it. Peter went and told the rest of the disciples, I was there. I got to see everything that happened to Jesus. But I want you to see what I did. I was there. Just as a side note, this is one of those things that are important for us to learn because it proves and validates why is it that we believe that the Bible is true. So, see, in, in, in the history of the world and in the history of Christianity, there has never, ever, ever, ever been anybody that is trying to recruit followers by being bold about their sin. Why would anybody want to invite people to follow Jesus if this is what the leaders did? See, I, I think that Peter is intentional about telling this story because he wants us to see that the only reason why Christianity is what Christianity is is not because of its leaders, but because of who God is. That little thing is so important for us to see. Because Peter wants us to understand how low he went, how big his sin was. Now, the story continues, and the second part of chapter 16, uh, verse 69 says this. A servant girl came to, Jesus, to Peter and says, You were also with Jesus of Galilee. But in verse 70, he automatically denied it. And he says, I don't know what you're talking about, girl. I, I added that part, but that's what I would say. <laughs> now, what I want you to notice is that this is a casual conversation. It's, it's very casual. She noticed, she asked, he denied. And notice the way he denies it. No, no nothing big, she's, I don't know what you're talking about. But I want you to see that there's something progressive in the, na in the nature of this narrative because moments later, look at what happens in verses 71 and 72. Another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. This is another girl. Look at how he responds. He denied it again and said, I don't know the man. This is no longer a casual conversation. Now we start to see and feel the tension of what is happening here. And the girl is emphatic, and Peter is emphatic and saying, she says, you were with him, and he says, no, I was not. The tone is increasing. The intensity is changing. Actually, we know that the intensity is changing because of what he says. He says he denied it with an oath. You know what that means? That means almost saying... I promise you, or I swear before the presence of God. I don't know that, man. Can you see 
how the narrative continues to change. And this is getting more and more aggressive. Now, the text says that not only one girl noticed that, you, that Peter was there, not only another girl noticed that Peter was there, but now those standing there also noticed something about Peter, verses 73, uh, verse 73 and 74. Surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the men. Let me ask you a question. And whom is he calling these curses down? Who is he talking about when he starts cursing someone down? I want to make the argument that he couldn't be cursing himself to get out of trouble. That wouldn't make any sense. I curse myself. I don't believe in Jesus. That wouldn't make any sense. He wouldn't, he wouldn't earn anything or gain anything out of that. He couldn't be cursing the people that are accusing him. Because that would make things worse. I, I curse you. I don't believe in Jesus. That wouldn't fix the problem. The reason why I make that argument is because I want you to see that there's a number of scholars, and I happen to agree with them, that in this moment of desperation, Peter is trying still to save himself to the point that he's cursing Jesus. I'm going to prove you that I don't believe in him, that I'm not with him. I'm going to curse him for you to see that I'm not one of them. And you get to see how low Peter continues to go and how desperate he is to save his life and how blind he is to his own struggle. And what he was willing, how far he was willing to go to save himself. And it's in that moment when he cursed Jesus, that verse 74 and 75 says this. Immediately, the rooster crowed. Now, the Gospel of Luke tells us that this happened, when this is happening, Jesus, in the midst of his affliction, looks at Peter. And it is when Jesus looks at Peter that verse 75 happens. Then Peter remembered the word of Jesus, the word that Jesus had spoken. Before this rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Just when Jesus looked at him. Now, it is because of the word disown that I actually believe that Peter cursed Jesus then. Because the word uh, disowned in the original is not just to deny and to reject. I don't think that that word truly uh, embraces what happened there. The word to disown in the original is to repu repudiate. is to really hate someone. So when Peter is being accused, he says, I promise you, I'm not with Jesus. I hate him. And then just then, in the middle of Jesus' affliction, Jesus looks at him and says, you are willing 
to say that you hate me to save yourself. I told you that you would do that. Can't can you see the magnitude of what's happening here? This is not just like, oops. I said something that I was not supposed to. This is Peter, one of the pillars of our faith, doing something that not even Judas did. I bet you that you never thought of that story that way. That's the example. So I have to ask the question again. Do you, do you actually think that Peter planned this? Wait, wait, there's no evidence in the scripture that says that he was like Judas. What is it that was happening then in Peter's heart that allowed him to get to this point? And be so naive about himself that he got to this point. So that will take us to point number two, the reason. So let's look here at verse 75 again. Look at what it says. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. When he says before the rooster crows, you would disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. And that little phrase at the end is extremely important. Before I talk about that one, though, let me just emphasize something on the word remember really quick. The text clearly shows that Peter is doing all these things, and for some reason, he cannot remember what Jesus had said. It almost like if um, Peter he is, is being caught by surprise. It's almost like when he denied Jesus, something happened, and then he's like, oh, yeah, that's what Jesus said. But I think that it's even more important for us to pay attention to the phrase, wept bitterly. Because the word, the word there, bitterly, is not just weeping with... Uh, uh. Actually, the word bitterly there can also be translated as agony and grief. He realized what he had done. He realized what he just did. And he has to hide from everyone else. And runs inside and weeps like if he had just lost a loved one. Grief. The question you got to ask the text is, why was he weeping? Like that. That is not the cry of someone that gets caught in sin. This is the attitude of someone that just knew something that he never saw before. And this is what I think is happening here. Peter knew Jesus. Peter loved Jesus. But Peter did not know his own heart. You want me to prove it to you? Why would I say that Peter knew Jesus and loved Jesus? I'm going to walk you through the different texts that we find in, just in the Gospel of Matthew and then in some of the Gospels, some other examples in the Gospel of John. But look at what happens in Matthew chapter 4. I'm just going to walk you really quick through this. Look at this. In Matthew chapter 4, 
This is the first time where we find Peter. And this is when Jesus is calling Peter to be one of his followers. If you remember that text, you may remember that Jesus calls Peter to be his followers. And the text says that he immediately, immediately dropped everything to follow Jesus. No hesitation whatsoever. Don't tell me that that's an attitude of a man who didn't think that Jesus was special. You go to Matthew chapter 8. And in Matthew chapter 8, Peter's, uh, Peter's uh, mother-in-law is sick. What does he do? He takes Jesus to heal his mother-in-law. Who does that? <laughs> now, we don't know about the relationship. <laughs> we don't know about the relationship between Peter and his mother-in-law. But even if they had a perfect relationship, he knows that if there's one person that can heal her, that person must be Jesus. Don't tell me that this man does not love Jesus. When you look at Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is choosing the 12 disciples. Now, you know what? What is the first name that appears in the list? Peter. Right from the beginning, Jesus had chosen Peter to be the leader of leaders. Don't tell me that Jesus did not love Peter and that Peter knew that. Then you go to Matthew chapter 14. This is when they're in the boat and Jesus is outside the boat. And Peter tells Jesus, if that's you, tell me to walk on water. Remember that? What does Peter do? He walks on water. Do you know what I would have done? If I said, Jesus, that you come and walk on water. And he says, come on. I'll be like, I'm just kidding. I, I was just bluffing. No, 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 not Peter. Peter gets out of the boat and walks on water. Who does that? Only a man that truly believes that that man that is calling me out must be God. You go to Matthew chapter 16. This is the first person. Peter is the first person that makes this profession of faith that nobody else has made. This is Peter saying for the first time in the, in the, in the Gospels, Jesus, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And later on, Jesus used Peter as an example of what it means to have genuine faith. In the same chapter, chapter 16, Jesus tells the disciples that he's going to get killed. You remember Peter's reaction. The only one out of the group, or the first one out of the group that said that. He says, never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Don't tell me that is not a man, that that is not a man that has a relationship with Jesus. When you go to Matthew chapter 17, is where we find the transfiguration. Who was with Jesus when God the Father spoke and said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Only three disciples. And among them, Peter. He got a special revelation. Don't tell me that Peter didn't have a relationship with Jesus. Matthew 26. Gethsemane. In the midst of his agony, Jesus' agony, who does he bring to be with him? Peter, James, and John. Don't tell me that Jesus did not have a relationship with Peter and Peter had a relationship with Jesus. That's only the Gospel of Matthew. There's no reason why we should think that Peter did not love Jesus. No reason whatsoever. Actually, we got more examples in John chapter 6. 
Jesus is preaching. He's saying everything that is going to happen. And everyone started to leave. And then he turns around and looks at the disciples and says, do you want to leave too? You remember what Peter said? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy Son of God. Don't tell me that these men didn't love Jesus. In John chapter 13, Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. Peter knows that only a slave would do that. So what does he tell Jesus? You shall never wash my feet. What does Jesus say? Unless I do this, you cannot be with me. How does Peter respond? Then, Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head. Everything, wash everything, I must be with you. Don't tell me that Peter did not love Jesus. He loved them. He struggled with the sin of duplicity. Was not because he was being phony. He struggled with the sin of duplicity. Is because he did not know his own heart. Do you know your heart? This is what Jeremiah says. The heart is deceitful above all things. This is one thing that I continue to say to the church. And I will say it until I die. Your worst enemy is never outside of you. My worst enemy is always inside of me. We have the perfect example of someone that did not know that. This is why I think that it's so dangerous, so extremely dangerous that we live in a culture that tells you that the best thing you can do is to follow your heart, is to submit to what you feel is right, is to be true to yourselves. There's nothing more detrimental for anybody, and especially Christians, to believe that that is true. That's why I think that Frank Sinatra was wrong. I don't think that the best thing is to celebrate that I did it my way. That's why I think that Stevie Wonder is wrong. When he has a song that says, you must be true to your heart, listen to your heart, and then you will be all right. I don't think so. Peter would say the opposite of that. That's why I think that Steve Jobs is wrong. Or was wrong when he says, there is no reason not to follow your heart. I'll give you Peter's reasons. I think that if there's one thing that we've got to learn as Christians is that we could trust almost anyone except our hearts. Two weeks ago, I mentioned this uh, scholar, uh, Thaddeus William. He's, uh, he's been, he's, he writes a lot about these things. And I, I'm grabbing something that he says and I'm modifying it. He gives us five reasons why we should never, ever, ever, ever Ever, 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 ever. You know how uncomfortable you guys look? <laughs> ever trust your heart. Five reasons. Our hearts are too dull to follow. 
the only thing that your heart and my heart thinks about is about my kingdom and myself in the center of that kingdom, even as believers. Remember, we are saints and sinners at the same time. You are saint because you are in Jesus, but you are a sinner because that heart still lives in you. Reason number two why we shouldn't follow our heart is because our hearts are too undecisive to trust. Today you want something, tomorrow you don't. Tomorrow you feel something, uh, today you feel something, tomorrow you don't. Can you imagine how inconsistent our life would be if you actually follow your heart and your emotions? Your heart, our heart is too divided to obey. We love so many different things at the same time that sometimes we don't even know what we really love. Reason number four, we are too depraved to be, to, for our hearts to be dependable. You want a few verses on that? Jeremiah chapter 17. I already read this. Your, your heart is so crooked, beyond cure, says the text. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Full of evil and madness is the heart. Matthew chapter 15. Out of the hearts come all the evil things in the world. And this is why Proverbs chapter 28 says that one who trusts in his heart is a fool. You know what a fool is? Walkie, which is a scholar from the book of Proverbs, he would actually explain that a fool is someone that thinks that he has it all together. That thinks that he or she knows how life works. Is someone that is wise in their own eyes. Reason number five why you and I should never trust our hearts is because our hearts are too delusional and biased. Therefore, we should never have confidence in it. There is a, a professor uh, of psychology from Hope College. He's written a number of books. Uh, and he gave this study in one of his books. His name is David Myers. He gave this study. Uh, he wrote a little book that is called The Inflated Self. And there's a chapter there that talks about pride. And this is there in that chapter. He gives these, uh, st- uh, he shows these statistics about the American mentality in general. All right? He says that as Americans, pastor included, we think that we are more intelligent, more ethical, and less prejudiced than our neighbors and, pe- and peers. This, and this is how you know that this is true. When we say things like, I would never do that. How many of you guys have ever said that? I would never do that. You know, Peter said the same thing. So he gives us a couple of examples. He says 99% of college professors. So if you're a professor, this is, this is not you. <laughs> 99% uh, percent of college professors, based on this study, believe themselves to be superior to the average peers. 99. So you probably just the 1% you're good. It talks about high schoolers. Now, this one, it, it has to be true. 820,000 high schoolers thought that they never had issues getting along with other students. Tell me if our hearts are not deceitful. 
It's almost like us looking ourselves in the mirror and not being able to see what's really dark in our hearts. Now, this is the good news. Peter wrote this story with a purpose. Peter showed us that this was his life. But Peter is also going to show us how is it that he changed. Because this is not the Peter that we see at the end of the Gospels. Point number three, the solution. Now, I want to remind you of something that I said about Jeremiah chapter 17. It actually says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. You know what that means? That our heart is so dark, so twisted that no one can fix it. From a human perspective. And I want to show you that Jesus found a way for him to cure Peter of his own heart. Or liberate him from his own heart. And this go back to the first time when Peter said that he would never deny Jesus. But we see this very clear in the Gospel of Luke. Look at what it says, Luke chapter 22, verse 31. This is Jesus talking to Peter and says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. Verse 32. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Isn't that interesting? Jesus told them, you will betray me. But I have prayed for you. And you will come back. And you will help your brothers. You know what will make a difference in Peter's heart? That Jesus prayed. Do you know why that's so significant in this narrative? Because prayer by definition is when someone stands in the gap for somebody else. It's when someone is representing somebody else. It's when someone is willing to stand before God and somebody else. And the reason why I think this is in this text right here. It's so we could see it was almost like a shadow of what Jesus would do hours later for Peter at the cross. See, the cross of Jesus Christ is the ultimate prayer. It is Jesus standing in a place of Peter or people like Peter. It is, it is Jesus actually taking the curse from God that Peter deserved because he cursed God. It is, it is Jesus praying for Peter to be forgiven and for him to be made new. You know how I told you that the heart cannot be, is, is, beyond, is beyond healing? Of course it is if Jesus is not present. But if Jesus is there and the gospel is there and we get to see who Jesus is and what Jesus did, our heart changes because in the, by the power of the Spirit, we get a new heart, a new nature. We are no longer just slaves to our sin, but we are also saints in Jesus Christ. See, I am convinced that if Peter was with us, he would actually sing what we just sang. I am forgiven because you were forsaken. I am accepted because you were condemned. I am alive and well because the Spirit is within me. Because you died and rose again. Amazing love. How can this be? 
that you, my king, my savior, the one I cursed, will die for me. The only way you die to the reality of your heart, the only way you are transformed with a new heart, is when we remember and embrace the one that prayed for us, not just before the cross, but in the act of dying in the cross. With this, I finish. Later on, Jesus will restore Peter. Remember that? He will call them to be a leader in the church for good. You remember that? Years later, 14, years, 14, 15 years later after he converted, he shows evidence of prejudice in his heart. He was eating with the Jews, with the Gentiles, and when the Jews showed up, you remember what he did? He moved from table to table. And Paul confronted him. And you know how he confronted him? He said this. That's not who you are anymore. That's what we all need. We remember that that's not who we are anymore. Amen. And we surrender to our Lord and Savior and allow him to continue to shape our hearts. Amen? Let's pray. Our beautiful God, we are grateful for your love, your mercy, your patience. Lord, today we do recognize that we still struggle with the things in our hearts. But we remember and celebrate that bigger, greater, and more powerful is the grace of Jesus Christ than the reality of our hearts. Please help us believe and embrace that. So we continue to die to ourselves and live in light of who we already are in Jesus Christ. And we all say, Amen.